Will the congregation please open God's word to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 12. Mark, chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. The title of our sermon this afternoon is, Is It Lawful? Is It Lawful? Please join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we again come before Thee. We thank Thee that we are able to lift Thee up, to bless Thee, to sing praises to Thy name, O God. We thank Thee that we have heard Thy word read, where we now ask for Thy aid, Thy help, as we hear it preached. Holy Spirit, please enable me, this stumbling and weak minister, to preach Thy word accurately. Lord, help us all to have ears to hear. Holy Spirit, apply thy word to us. Help us to not just hear it with our physical ears, to not just understand it intellectually, O God, but, O Lord, that it would take root in our heart, that which is true, and that we would live it, O God. We would live for thy glory, Lord Jesus. Lord, we need thee. We ask for a blessing, O God. From thy word, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. Hear God's word. And he, that is Jesus, arose from thence, and cometh into the coasts of Judea, by the farther side of Jordan. And the people resort unto him again, and, as he was wont, he taught them again. And the Pharisees came to him and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife, tempting him? And he answered and said unto them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses suffered to write a bill of divorcement and to put her away. And Jesus answered and said unto them, For the hardness of your heart he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And they twain shall be one flesh. So then, they are no more twain, that is two, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. And in the house his disciples asked him again of the same matter. And he said unto them, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, may he bless it. Is it lawful? Dear congregation, it is the common practice of all people to find loopholes. It is the common practice of all people to find loopholes. That is, to have an appearance of keeping the law while obtaining a way to break it. This is no less true in religion than it is in civics. This practice is damaging when it happens and occurs in society, but it's absolutely devastating when it's applied to religion. Mm. How often do we come across Christians, most commonly in the mirror, who wish to go line by line through the most popular vices, the most pertinent sins, to list all the possible practices that exist, whether good, bad, or neutral, and ask, is it lawful? Is it lawful? Drunkenness 
is obviously a sin. But many are tempted to ask, well, just how many drinks is it lawful to have? We all know that we should not look upon wicked and provocative images. But many Christians, when it comes to media, when it comes to movies, when it comes to television, ask, well, how much promiscuity is lawful before I'm not allowed to watch this? We know that we are not able to be a healthy Christian without attending to the means of grace. But there's many who think this way. What is the least amount of Bible reading? That it is lawful to be done. That way I have the most time for myself while tipping my hat to my Christian profession. The true Christian spirit, on the other hand, dear congregation, is not concerned with finding out what is lawful and permissible as much as it is about discovering what is best. The true Christian spirit does not concern itself as much with discovering what is lawful or permissible as it does with discovering what is best. It loves the substance of the law, not the letter. The more foundational and beautiful an institution that this approach of is it lawful uh, is applied to, the more sinful this method appears. As in our passage, its wickedness, this is it lawful method, the wickedness of it, is perhaps displayed most in the institution of marriage, given by God to be the bedrock of human society. What is the bare minimum that I must do in marriage and it still be a lawful marriage? What, is the necess- what necessary parts, what elements must exist, must be present before I can divorce and it be lawful? In our text, let us notice three things. Number one, the patience of Christ as a teacher. The patience of Christ as a teacher. Secondly, the sacredness of marriage. The sacredness of marriage. And third, the excellence of marriage to Christ. The excellence of marriage to Christ. First, the patience of Christ as a teacher. Verse 1 we read, And he arose from thence and cometh into the coast of Judea by the farther side of Jordan, and the people resort unto him again. And as he was wont, as was his custom, He taught them again. Jesus, dear congregation, came into the world to proclaim the good news, the gospel, to sinful men. He is himself the very word of God. He is the preaching of God to us. He is the self-revelation of God. Jesus is that great mediatorial prophet sent to reveal the will and purposes of the triune God unto men. He is the Teacher, wherever our Lord Jesus went, therefore we should look at, we should notice that he was always about his father's business, whether it was preaching, teaching, or doing good to souls. He never wasted one opportunity to preach. He never wasted one opportunity to teach, to explain and expound the kingdom of God. Throughout all of his ministry, we never read of one single day off, one idle day. He was always teaching. Always about his father's business. Wherever he went, people came to him to be taught. And he taught them. No matter where he was, there's crowds of people coming to be taught, to hear his words. And he never 
failed them in giving them his words. Jesus did not grow weary in well-doing, did he? We notice the repeated word here, again, again. The people resort unto him again, and Jesus taught them again. Again and again, people came to Jesus, and again and again, he taught them. This is most instructive to us, dear congregation. For we know that Christ's hearers were often hard-hearted, unbelieving, and stiff-necked, weren't they? Yet he never grew bitter against them. He never gave up teaching them. He never forsook them. This shows that we, as Christians, dear congregation, must bear with those around us in their instruction. Whether they are Christian or not, we must bear with them. How often we become weary in covering the same ground time and time again with unbelievers in our lives. Possibly a brother, a sister, a cousin, an aunt, an uncle, a mother, or a father. You've had that same conversation, explain the gospel over and over again. They just don't seem to get it. We grow weary of doing it. This Thanksgiving, I'm not going to bring it up. I won't talk about the gospel this time because it never seems to go anywhere. We grow tired also of explaining the same doctrines to other Christians around us and disagreeing and trying to help each other understand the truth. But we ought to be more like our master in this, dear congregation. Let the ignorant resort unto us again and again, and let us, as ambassadors of Christ Jesus, instruct them again and again and again. Our precious Jesus labored on, Kept laboring on, kept preaching, kept teaching, despite the people's dullness. Our Lord knew the hearts of these people as well. He knew perfectly well that the majority of his hearers were stubborn, hard-hearted, and unbelieving. Even as he spoke words to them. He knew full well that most of his words would fall to the ground unheeded. He knew, concerning the salvation of the souls that were before him, That most of his labor was in vain. Yet, he did not give up. He did not give up. He labored on. He labored on. Continuing to teach them again and again. Dear Christians. Dear Christians. Let us be more like our tender, patient, long-suffering Lord Jesus in this. Whatever role God has given any of us in life. Whatever station he has placed us in by his providence. We all have some influence on others. We all have some influence on others. We must then therefore steward this influence that he has given us. We must steward it well. This must be especially heeded by elders and ministers. But it applies no less to both the most and to the least expert Christian alive. Whatever knowledge you have of Christ, dear congregation... Whatever knowledge you have of Christ and of his word, of true biblical Christian doctrine, you have enough to give to someone else because you are a Christian and you at least know the gospel. You must not grow weary then, therefore, in liberally distributing that knowledge. But pastor, one might say, I have long labored in the gospel and in doctrine, trying to reason with my fellow Christians, trying to share the gospel with unbelievers. I've done this for a long time, but I see no fruit for all of my toiling. Nothing comes of it. Surely I cannot be expected to continue teaching again and again when my efforts are only resisted. Well, not so, I respond. Not so, dear Christian. 
You must continue. Why? The honor of Christ is at stake. The honor of Christ and his gospel is at stake. The eternal destiny of souls hangs in the balance, dear Christian. Many, if not most, it is true, will not hear you. They will not. They will not heed your words. They will not come to Christ regardless of how many tears you plead with. Yet, there are some who will. There are some who will. And Christ must therefore be glorified in their reception of his gospel. Remember, Jehovah's call to the prophet Jeremiah contained not only God's promise of protection for the prophet, but also a prophecy to him that his words through Jeremiah would go largely unheeded by Israel. He promised him that. Still, Jeremiah was called, and still he went forth. And despite every resistance he came up against, he preached, he prophesied. Dear congregation, it is therefore our duty to instruct, but only God can bring about the results of us fulfilling that duty. Only God can bring about the results. God knows that his servants, we Christians, who are sent out to preach the gospel unto all creation, cannot change hearts. He knows that we can't change hearts. He doesn't expect us to change hearts, but he does expect us to instruct hearts. To be willing again and again to instruct the hearts of the ignorant. How humble this should make us. This should make us very humble. How willing to bear long with the ignorant and with the resistant this should make us. Therefore, let us be diligent in our business, dear congregation. And what is our business? The instruction of the ignorant around us through teaching and preaching and sharing the gospel. If we are diligent in our business, God will be diligent in his, namely enlightening, applying, effectually calling the ignorant. As J.C. Ryle said, quote, God will reward his servants according to their labor. God will reward his servants according to their labor and not according to the fruits which have resulted from their labor. End quote. It is not the good and successful servant, but the good and faithful servant, dear congregation, to whom Jesus will say, Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Matthew twenty five twenty one. How much more, dear congregation? Will we be encouraged to be patient in teaching the unbelieving around us? Even our own brothers in Christ around us. When we remember our own constant ignorance and need of instruction. We are constantly in need of instruction as Christians. We are constantly discovering new levels, profound ignorance. Even those whom Christ hath taught, that is us, we Christians, need to come to Jesus again and be taught again. Matthew Henry said, quote, Such is the fullness of the Christian doctrine that there is still more to be learned. And such our forgetfulness that we need to be reminded of what we do know. End quote. This is why the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Philippi saying, To write the same things unto you, to me, indeed, is not grievous, but for you, it is safe. So too, the Apostle Peter writes to Christians, telling them that he will not be negligent to continually remind his hearers of Christian doctrine. For by the constant remembrance 
of Christian doctrine, they shall be established in the truth. 2 Peter 1.12 Thus, dear congregation, it is safe for us. It is safe for us as Christians to cover the same ground many times. Being instructed and then re-instructed and then re-instructed in the truths of Christ. We must have that. And blessed be God, our precious and sweet Lord Jesus is always patient and always willing to continually teach us again and again. Let us therefore likewise be patient with others, dear congregation. So dear husband, dear husband, if weary in explaining the truth to your wife, or wife in explaining the truth to your husband, then look to Christ's example. Dear parents, look to your patient teacher, Jesus Christ, as your example for how to instruct your children. Teacher, Jesus Christ, who teaches us, will teach us how to teach others. Christians, grow not weary in patient instruction of your fellow Christian brothers who may be babes in Christ. Above all, we must all look to Christ for strength to persevere in ministering the gospel to the hardened, unbelieving, and dead sinners around us. God alone can open their eyes, but we must persevere in being willing to teach them again and again. Second, the sacredness of marriage. We see this in verses 2 through 12. So while Jesus is in the middle of patiently instructing the crowd, he's teaching the crowd again, instructing them kindly and patiently through the truths of the kingdom of God, in come some Pharisees to take him off of his gracious work and a w- wickedly attempt to ensnare him in a theological trap again. They wish to catch Jesus in some inconsistency, perceived or otherwise, that they might, point to the, they might point this out to the crowd and say, Aha! Aha! See, this Jesus of Nazareth is a false prophet. He cannot be the Christ. He can't be the Messiah, for he's not even a godly teacher. Look how erroneous his teaching is. They interrupt his teaching to ask, Is it lawful to, for a man to put away his wife? Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife? Is there a situation that allows for a man to divorce his wife? What elements must be present for it to be lawful? Now, this was a perfectly good question in and of itself if it had been rightly asked with a humble desire to know the mind of God on this matter. It's a perfectly good question. But they asked it, what? Tempting him. Tempting him. Seeking an opportunity to expose him as a false teacher, regardless of what interpretation he gave. They were going to say, you're a false teacher. Remember that Christians, we should all remember this, especially ministers, but all Christians, must stand their ground when being asked questions of unbelievers. Be careful and guard, for oftentimes questions are asked in pretense simply in order to ensnare us. They were hoping that Jesus would would not go straight to the Scripture but give his own interpretation. Possibly align himself with one of the possible interpretations that existed at that day. There was a couple of schools that we'll look at in a minute of, that, that were very influential for the Jews at that time and how they understood this passage, this question. They were hoping Jesus would side himself with one of those interpreters or possibly give him his own interpretation 
Not that he would turn to Scripture. But Jesus, as he so often does, turns their attack around on themselves. He turns their attack around on themselves. And he responds saying in verse 3, What did Moses command you? What did Moses command you? God has not been silent on the matter. He's spoken, and he's spoken clearly. Why do you ask me? Do you think I'm going to give you a new, a different, a fresh answer than that which God has already given? Go to the word of God, and you shall have your answer. What has Moses commanded you? They wished to fabricate error in Jesus' teaching. No matter what he said, they were going to do it. But he rather exposes their own false teaching before the crowd by turning to the word of God. So should we do. We should always rely on the authoritative word of God, not our own reasoning. I don't care if it's presuppositionalism. I don't care if it's classical apologetics. Whatever it may be, we cannot lean on the arm of the flesh, dear congregation. In our own thinking of who God is, in our own rebuke of our own sin daily in the mirror, or in evangelism. Well, what is their response? They said, Moses suffered, that is permitted or allowed, to write a bill of divorcement and to put her away. Verse 4. So we see that in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, Moses had written this. When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he hath found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement. That's what's written in Deuteronomy 24, and verse 1. That's what Moses said. But over the ages, the Jews had corrupted the meaning of this passage. With false interpretation. By the time of the Lord Jesus' ministry, the prevailing opinions among the Jews of the meaning of this passage had grown so corrupt. It was corrupt in the extreme. According to their own writings, divorce was allowable for the most trivial and the most unjust of causes. They had come to interpret, she find no favor in his eyes and uncleanness in her, as referring not to marital infidelity. Not adultery. There's two schools. One school, Shammai, held more to that. But then Hillel, which we'll talk about in a minute, had a very different interpretation. But the predominant interpretation at this time was not that it referred to infidelity. But it simply referred to improper behavior. Something offensive. Something shameful. Or something scandalous. And detached from any context, these terms, shameful, offensive, scandalous, are ambiguous at best, aren't they? According to the ancient Jewish rabbi, Hillel, whose teaching on the subject had become the authority in the time of Jesus, a man could divorce his wife for the flimsiest of reasons. For the flimsiest of reasons. A wife could be divorced if she served her husband food that was slightly burnt or too salted. Or if while at home, she talked so loud that her neighbors could hear her, she could be divorced. That was one of the prevailing views at the time. This liberal and lax attitude towards God's holy institution led to its being greatly dishonored. Greatly dishonored. Divorce was rampant in Israel. If a wife had lost some of her youthful form in childbearing, then simply catch her talking too loud. You could be freed from her. If her sister had grown up to be much prettier than she was, Claim that her stew is too salty. And then you can have yourself a brand new, young, prettier wife. Jesus, by forcing them to the scriptures, 
exposed their foolish and wicked false teaching. The crowd heard the verse that was quoted through that interpretive lens of the day. That basically that can mean anything. Food's too salty. She's too loud. A whole number of things. That's how they interpreted it. So Jesus brings them back further to where we need to be. How this must be understood. Rather than arguing for this or that interpretation, whether it was Hillel's prevailing liberal interpretation or the more strict opinions of Shammai, rather than doing this, Jesus demonstrates that the underlying emphasis of the question itself was altogether wrong. Altogether wrong. Why was there all this talk about what makes divorce possible, permissible, lawful, as if it was expected to happen? Why are people even talking about this? Some things never change. It seems that the majority of people in our day have a very similar line of thinking, and this has always existed. People, even Christians, I've heard of, coming into marriage say, I want to know exactly what constitutes a lawful divorce. I want to know beforehand, so that if this marriage doesn't work out, I can always divorce my spouse. Because uncommitted, unfaithful people always need and want a backup. Some things never change. Jesus demonstrates that if we wish to discuss marriage, we must go back further than Deuteronomy 24.1. Don't start there. We must go all the way back to God's ordaining of marriage in Genesis 1 and 2. He says in verses 5 through 9, For the hardness of your heart, Moses wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Here, Jesus points to the original institution of marriage all the way back at creation. As the union of one man and one woman. He quotes the solemn words that were used at the marriage of Adam and Eve as words of perpetual significance. Namely, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one. And that's when he says, therefore what God has put together, let not man put asunder. The reason Moses had allowed this, why had Moses even written this in the first place, was because man's heart was so wicked, so sinful, so faithless, that if a possible way of marriage, out of marriage, was not provided, he would just begin murdering his wife. Like we see in John 8 and the women caught in adultery. So that no one could put their wives away without without being willing to accept that their hearts were so sinful, so hard, and rebellious that they needed this permission. That was the point. That only the worst of you will need this permission. Here, Christ exposes not only their false teaching, but their wickedness. By going back past Deuteronomy 24.1, he's going to get snagged up in the debates about this among the teachers that existed. If he sides with Shammai, he'll make most of the people angry who side with Hillel. If he gives his own interpretation, he'll make everyone mad and they'll find reason. If he goes with the liberal interpretation, well, he's defying God, isn't he? So what does he do? We must go back further to what the scriptures themselves say. To what God instituted at creation. Later, when alone with his disciples, they ask Jesus for further instruction on the matter. And he says... Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her. 
And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. In light of both the parallel passage that we see in Matthew 19 and Christ's words in Matthew 5, 32, where he says, Whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication or adultery, causeth her to commit adultery. In light of those two passages, we believe the clear teaching of the Bible on divorce is that it is only lawful in the case of adultery. And even then, it's not required. Just because it's permitted doesn't mean that the couple has to divorce. We agree with J.C. Ryle's succinct explanation, quote, remarriage after divorce for frivolous causes, meaning she made you your cake, your, your, your pancakes too salty, so you divorce her, frivolous causes, so common in Jesus' day, is clearly adultery. That is adultery. For one simple reason. The divorce never ought to have taken place, and the divorced party is still a married person in the sight of God. Remarriage after divorce for unfaithfulness, by the same process of reasoning, Ryle says, is not adultery. Unfaithfulness dissolves the marriage tie altogether and places the husband and wife once more in the position of unmarried people or of a widower and a widow. End quote. By and large, we agree with that, I think. There's obviously much more to be said there and much debate among Reformed believers and Christian believers on that. But that's for another time. Dear congregation, the importance of this whole subject of divorce, which... Christ places his strongest condemnation here in this passage cannot be overstated. The importance of the subject of divorce, of marriage, cannot be overstated. Why? Marriage is the very root and foundation of all societal systems. Of all societal systems. This is true in every time, every culture, every nation. The public morality of a people and their private happiness and their families, of which it is comprised, is reflected by that nation's view of marriage. You want to see how godly, how moral, how ethical, how conservative a nation is? Look to what they believe about marriage. In fact, it is a fact which cannot be refuted that wrong views of marriage, like polygamy, divorce over slight grounds, Homosexuality being permitted as a valid form of marriage have direct immor- directly promote immorality. They directly promote immorality. That can't be argued. The more wicked we have become as a nation, the less we have valued marriage. That can't be argued either. The nearer a nation's laws about marriage conform to the law of Christ the higher and more robust the nation's moral tone has always proved to be, J.C. Ryle said. Dear congregation, it is therefore incumbent on all who are married, incumbent on all who are married, or all who desire to someday be married, to carefully consider the teaching of Jesus Christ in this passage. Of all life's relations, dear congregation, none are to be regarded with such Reverence as that of marriage, nor to be approached or discharged with more care and caution. Marriage should not be taken lightly by us, should not be taken lightly by a society, by a nation, but especially by Christians. Marriage is an honor, it's a blessing from God, but it's also a great responsibility that requires a lot of work and diligence. One Puritan said this. 
It is not evil to marry, but it is good to be wary. In no human relation is so much earthly happiness to be found as that of marriage. But only when it is entered into carefully, advisedly, and in the fear of God Almighty, who is the one who instituted it. Likewise, no relation outside of marriage does so much misery follow from when it is entered into rashly, unadvisedly, lightly, carelessly, and without much thought. In marriage, said Puritan Henry Smith, one must, quote, choose his love and then love his choice. Choose his love and then love his choice. Therefore, dear congregation, we must be careful how we discharge our marital duties. It is not only the happiness of the husband and wife that are at stake, but the honor of Christ. We, be, we are to be careful in our marital duties, how we discharge them, not simply because our happiness is on the line, that too, but all the more so because the honor of Christ is on the line. We must honor marriage out of love for God and the gospel. Why? Marriage is a type and shadow, a very reflection of Christ's marriage to his bride, the church. That's why. As J.C. Ryle, in his commentary, said, he gives us three guiding rules for marriage. Quote, the first is to marry only in the Lord and after prayer for God's approval and blessing. The second rule is not to expect too much from the partners. And to remember that marriage is, after all, the union of two sinners, not of two angels. The third rule is to strive first and foremost for one another's sanctification. The more holy married people are, the happier they are. Christ loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify it. End quote. Therefore, dear believers, dear Christians, we see over all else that we must highly esteem marriage, hold its laws and its duties and its joys and its regulations highly, Because it is a picture of the gospel to ourselves and to the world. It's a gospel picture to the watching world. As we love Christ, so we esteem marriage. Meaning the more we love Christ, the more we love marriage. This brings us to our final point. Third, the excellency of marriage to Christ. The beauty of marriage, dear congregation. More than anything else, consists... In the fact that it typifies Christ's marriage to his own bride, the church, Christians. The Apostle Paul, after putting forth instructions on how husbands and wives are to behave in marriage, says this in Ephesians 5.32. This, meaning everything he just talked about, is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. He says, husbands do this, wives do this. And then backs up and says, I'm speaking of a great mystery here. Christ and his church. The church is married to Christ as a wife is married to her husband. Christ laid down his life for the church in order to make her his bride. He shed his blood for her. He shed his blood for her, sanctifying her and washing her of her sins that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy without blemish. That's how Christ gained his church, redeemed his church, and views his church. Dear congregation, 
an earthly marriage. An earthly marriage. No matter how happy, no matter how healthy it may be, pales in all comparison to the greatest and the best marriage that a man can participate in. That is, marriage to Christ. Marriage to Christ. Thus, just as a husband should not be going down the line to see what is lawful, how he may be rid of his wife, and just like spouses should not concern themselves with discovering what is the bare minimum of lawful standards in loving their spouses, so too we as Christians, dear congregation, ought not to be seeking to just get by in our Christian life. We should not be seeking to just get by in our Christian life. In our marriage to Christ, our concern, and hear me carefully, should not be, how many things are permissible for me to do as a Christian? What may I do? But rather, how may I best love and serve my Lord Jesus Christ, my husband? Not, what is the lawful portion, but what is the best portion? We must see how mistreated our Lord Jesus is. When we seek the letter of the law over the heart and substance of the law. It's interesting to note also that the words used here in Mark 10 for a bill of divorcement are in the original Viblion Apostasiu, that is, a book of apostasy. That is, to divorce is to apostatize from the marriage. To apostatize from the marriage. So too, many who call themselves Christian, who claim to be married to Jesus, apostatize from him, don't they? We, of course, hold, as Calvinists, that no true Christian, one who is inwardly a regenerate member of the covenant of grace, can ever fall away from Christ and be totally lost, can never apostatize. But, dear congregation, we must also remember that those fearful warning passages in the book of Hebrews are written not to unbelievers, but to the church. Mm-hmm. To the church. Paul writes to Christians in that book, exhorting them to love and do good to one another, warning them against the forsaking of church gatherings on the Lord's Day, and then tells them, if we, that is, those who claim to be Christian, those who are claiming to be married to Christ, sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, that is, if we apostatize back into a false religion of works righteousness, returning to the Judaic systems of the Old Covenant, there remaineth, he says, no more sacrifice for sins. None. That is, if they return to false religions, they are divorced. They are cut off from Christ. We too, dear Christians, while never fearing, we should never fear that we will be snatched out of Christ's hand or that we're going to jump out ourselves. We're going to lose our salvation. Yet, we must be careful that we avoid all the things that lead to apostasy. Though we can't apostatize because we're held by Christ, we should still fear all the things that lead to apostasy. Apostasy is a great and fearful evil, for it is the knowing rejection of the only Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what apostasy is. It's the knowing rejection of Christ's blood 
as a sacrifice. It is the greatest sin. It is the unforgivable sin. And all sin, as one Puritan wrote, is the rape of God's mercy. Thus, apostasy is the most vile rape of his mercy, isn't it? William Gurnall said, quote, None sink so far into hell as those that come nearest to heaven, because they fall from the greatest height. Fearful words. Fearful indeed. Then how shall we fight against this as Christians? How shall we fight against things that lead to apostasy as Christians? How shall man, a man examine himself to see if there be any root of unbelief in him? Which unbelief leads to apostasy. Another Puritan said this, Indifference in religion. Indifference in religion is the first step to apostasy from religion. Dear congregation, all those, I'm sure we all have many stories as well, of poor, beleaguered people we've known. All those that I've seen make credible, sound professions of faith. Join themselves to the church put on the wedding ring of baptism, and then turn from God, have exhibited this very thing, indifference. They grow indifferent in their religion. They stopped reading their Bibles daily. They stopped praying as much. They became more interested in worldly trinkets and pleasures and accomplishments. And they slowly stopped going to church. Till finally... One day, they were great haters of God, denouncing his reality or divorcing themselves from his authority, whoring themselves out to other gods as did Israel and Judah. I've seen many people, Christian brothers and sisters, who are no longer Christian brothers and sisters. They went out one day, hearing God's word and saying, these are pure words. The words of the living God, they're like honey to the taste. To another day, this is an hard saying. Who can hear it? And then they turned and walked no more with Jesus, nor with his people. That is apostasy. They apostatized. And we must heed those apostasy passages, those warnings, dear Christian. So, dear Christian, I ask thee, how goes it with thy soul? Does thy heart still burn within thee when thou hearest his voice? Is his Bible, his Bible, sweeter to thee than honey? If you care not for his Bible, dear Christian, he may take it from thee. Is it of more value than gold to thee, yea, than much fine gold? Hast thou grown indifferent to going down to his house with his people? Does thy heart no longer leap to sing his praises? Then, dear Christian, fear thyself. Fear thyself. Gird up thy loins. Gird up the loins of thy mind and of thy heart. Quit thyself like a man, dear Christian, and be put on to put off thy indifference. Get thee again bowels of love for Jesus Christ, dear Christian. We must be taught again and again, dear believers, again and again. This is how we combat all those things that lead the unbelievers to apostatize. We must cast out the root of doubt within us, of unbelief, 
of indifference to God, of apathy toward the great, sovereign, glorious Savior. We must consider our marriage vows to Christ. When we do this, we shall honor earthly marriage also, when we honor our marriage to Christ. We shall do honor to all earthly relationships, in fact, and bring glory to God in all of our earthly duties. Knowing our guilt, knowing our guilt, having received the grace of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, gratitude wrought obedience will flow from our head, our hearts, and our hands. That's what the scriptures teach us. Regardless of the institution, relation, or duty, all things are sapped of meaning when they're divorced from Christ. I'll say that again. Regardless of the institution, that's marriage, friendship, church membership, relation, or duty, all things in life, dear congregation, are sapped of their meaning when they are divorced from Christ. But viewed in light of who Christ is, they are brimming with supernatural beauty, meaning, and vitality. All things have their meaning found and how they relate to Jesus Christ. Let us go, therefore, dear congregation, to our bridegroom. Let us go to him afresh and feast upon Christ afresh. Amen. Let us pray. Lord God, we come before thee boldly to thy throne of mercy. Only through the blood of thy Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask, O God, that we would honor marriage. Those that are seeking marriage, that would continue to work in them, O God, I ask. Prepare them for marriage. They might view it rightly in light of thy word and in light of thy marriage to us, thy church. Pray, God, for the marriages that are here. We would constantly have our minds as husbands and wives set on our marital duties only in light of what thou hast done for us, Lord Jesus, and taking us as thy bride. Holy Spirit, please continue to work in us to be bold for thy gospel, for thy word, for thy law. Pray, God, thou wouldst use us and work through us to turn the tide of this nation and its hatred for the institution of marriage. We thank thee. We love thee, O Lord. Please prepare our hearts that we might take thy supper now with great joy, with love, adoration to thee. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.